Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, welcome to the History Hit Warfare podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers, and in this episode, we are looking at the life and remarkable service of Britain's forgotten field marshal. That is Field Marshal Viscount Allenbrook, the man who helped save over 340,000 troops at Dunkirk. He spoke truth to power with Churchill and readied Britain's defences for what was thought to be Hitler's inevitable invasion of Britain. To tell us pretty much everything there is to know about Allenbrook, we have the fantastic Bill Duff. Bill served in the Parachute Regiment and the Royal Ulster Constabulary. He has a PhD from St Andrews and is a fellow of the University of Loughborough. What Bill doesn't know about Allenbrook isn't worth knowing. So here he is, Bill Duff, on Allenbrook, Britain's forgotten field marshal. Hi, Bill. Thanks for coming on to Warfare. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, thank you. I just had an obituary published on Friday in the Daily Telegraph, which has put me in good form. He's a great former SAS soldier, and uh, he sadly died far too young, and I was just glad to get some recognition for himself and for his family. So, yes, on good form, thank you. Oh, amazing. What was his name? Uh, Tommy Turtle, Major Tommy Turtle, uh, late of the Royal Irish Regiment and the SAS. Oh, fascinating. Well, it is great to have you on the podcast. You are a man of many, many talents. You yourself served in the Parachute Regiment and the Royal Ulster Constabulary. And of course, you've got a PhD from St Andrews. But one of your many talents is your historical knowledge and interest in Field Marshal Viscount Allenbrook. So tell us, who was Allenbrook? Well, James, it's an absolute pleasure to give it a go. Field Marshal Viscount Allenbrook is largely a forgotten man today. And in fact, he wasn't even terribly well known during the war and while he was alive because he was a man who never really sought the limelight, unlike some other generals. Only about 15 years after the war, Lieutenant General Sir Brian Horrocks, and for anybody who's ever seen the film A Bridge Too Far, Horrocks was the chap he was played by the actor Edward Fox, who comes onto a stage and explains to wild applause from his officers that they're going to go up to Arnhem. And at one point he says that the Irish guards will lead us off tomorrow morning. And Michael Caine, who's playing the role of Joe Vandeleur, the CEO of the commanding officer of the Irish guards, said, oh, not us again. And Horrocks says, 
what do you say to that, Joe? And he says, Michael Caine stands up and he says, delighted, sir, truly delighted. Well, that was Horrocks and he commanded the 30 Corps. And he said, about 15 years after the war, he said, nearly everybody has heard of Montgomery, Alexander and Eisenhower, but very few people outside of the army have ever heard of Lord Allenbrook because in some extraordinary way, he has always managed to keep out of the limelight. But I can assure you that he was the greatest soldier of them all. Now, when you think of those words, the greatest soldier of them all, that is some claim. General Sir David Fraser, who fought in World War II, he only died a few years ago. He was a grenadier, but he was a full general. And he was also Alan Brooke's biographer. He said, Field Marshal Viscount Alan Brooke probably did more than any other soldier to bring victory to the Allies in 1945. Montgomery said, and of course, Montgomery was not a man who was given to praising anybody except himself. He said he was the greatest soldier, sailor or airman produced by any country fighting in the last war. When he died in June 1963, he was a Knight of the Garter. He was Knight Grand Cross of the Order of the Bath, a member of the Order of Merit, a Knight Grand Cross of the Royal Victorian Order. He had the Distinguished Service Order and Bar. And he was, or he had been, uh, aide-de-camp to the King, Master Gunner, Constable of the Tower of London, Lord Lieutenant for London, Colonel Commandant of a number of regiments, Lord High Constable of England and Chancellor of Queen's University, Belfast, from 1949 until his death. So who was this? I mean, somebody to gather all those accolades and yet not be known even during his lifetime. Why all the accolades? Well, the main reason is that from December 1941, he was Chief of the Imperial General Staff. He succeeded Field Marshal Sir John Dill, who happened to be from the same part of the world, from Northern Ireland. He was the professional head of the British Army. He was chairman of the Chiefs of Staff Committee. He was the principal military advisor to Churchill for most of the war. He took the leading military part in the overall strategic direction of the British war effort. And the more one learns about Allenbrook, and the more one sees that the direction of the war, as it was pursued by the British and the Americans in the West, I'm excluding the Pacific here now, because that was largely dictated by the United States. But the direction of the war in Europe, in the Western side, was really Alan Brooks direction. We all know the sequence of events. After Pearl Harbor, Operation Torch, the Anglo-American invasion of North Africa, the clearing of North Africa from the east for after Alamein. Then we move into Sicily. Then we go to Italy. Then we go to Normandy in 1944. Now, we all think of that, anybody who reads about that nowadays, tends to think of that as a fairly logical sequence of events. But without Allenbrook, it could all have been very, very different indeed. The Americans incredibly wanted to go into France in 1942 when they would not have been ready at all. I mean, they only came into the war and started to really mobilize at the end of 41. And then the American chiefs of staff were very, very keen on going into France in 1943 Alan Brook realized he knew what the Germans were all about. He knew the Wehrmacht and, of course, the SS. He knew the fighting qualities of the German war machine, and he knew that they would make mincemeat of us. We simply didn't have the air cover. We didn't have the landing craft. We didn't have the trained American divisions, which we had in 1944. So the Americans were not keen on Sicily or Italy. That was a distraction. But Alan Brook again knew that if we can get into Italy, we're going to tie down a lot of first-class German divisions on D-Day when we eventually go to France. So the whole sequence of events was pretty much 
Alan Brooks. And as a result of that, his statue, he has a statue in Westminster outside the Ministry of Defence main building. And it's a rather grotesque statue. I don't like it at all. It says more about the sculptor than it does about the man. But it does say underneath it, Alan Brook, master of strategy. And that is what his real contribution was. General Sir David Fraser, again, he said, Alan Brook was a man of many parts, a completely professional soldier, a sensitive and affectionate person in his human relationships, a lover of nature and particularly of ornithology, a dedicated sportsman, a loyal son of his native Ulster, who grew up in France and spoke French before he learned English. Britain and the British Army were fortunate in possessing him. And he continued, his responsibility ranged across the entire war effort. His sphere of interest was the world. The stage on which he performed was that of the highest direction of the war. Fortunately for Britain, it is also the story of an Ulsterman of outstanding stamina, intelligence and strength of will. A professional soldier of well-tempered steel, a supreme realist, a man of clear head and great heart, Irish breeding and an Irish heart, Alan Brooke. He was born in France on the 23rd of July, 1883, the youngest child of Alice and Victor Brooke. Victor Brooke was the third baronet of Brookborough. They were the Brooks of Colebrook in County Fermanagh in what is now Northern Ireland. His early life was spent between France and Colebrook. The reason he was born in France was his mother, a particularly beautiful woman, she had taken to go into France for the summer holidays. And then eventually, as her health declined, she lived in France for, I think, maybe the last number of years of her life. And that was why he grew up in France and spoke French like a Frenchman. He graduated from the Royal Military Academy at Woolwich in December of 1902. He was commissioned into the Royal Artillery. And he made progress there because I noted that he entered numbered or graded 65 out of 72 students, which is fairly far down the list for a boy who's going to become the chief of the Imperial General Staff. It shows that we're all late developers, but he passed out 17th. He then spent three years in peacetime soldiering in Ireland and eight years in India. And of course, India was a great place to serve an apprenticeship as a soldier back in the early part of the 20th century. In 1908, he became engaged to a girl called Jane Richardson from a place called Ross Fad in County Fermanagh. And they had a long engagement, which was quite normal in those days because army officers were pretty broke all the time. They couldn't afford to get married. And they actually got married six days before World War I broke out, which was pretty bad timing. He spent his war in France. He spent the whole of the war in France. And as you know, artillery was the principal battle-winning weapon of World War I. Other weapons certainly came of age, like tanks and machine guns and aircraft and so on. But um, artillery was the, the main focus, and he became the absolute master of it. Ah, that makes sense, you see, because you say he's a master strategist. Well, you kind of have to know a bit about strategy and a lot about tactics if you're going to be involved in the artillery during the First World War. A lot of that is down to a battle of minds and a battle of wits, isn't it? Trying to figure out what the next person's going to do. That's a very good point, and I'm glad you brought it in there, because Alan Brooke, he did come up with a number of innovations, and he had a very, very busy war. In January 15, he was made a staff captain in the Royal Artillery of the 2nd Indian Cavalry Division, in which he was, in effect, the adjutant to the Commander Royal Artillery for that division. And he absolutely reveled in the responsibility, and he was always acting up, if you like, if you can use that term. He was always doing more than his rank demanded normally. He wrote about his, he had a colonel called Asquith, who was his boss, and he said, my new commander, Colonel Asquith, 
was a very charming person to meet and live with, but certainly not one of the world's workers. He looked upon his profession as a means of providing him with an easygoing life, connected with horses, hunting and good friends. His dislike of work was so deeply ingrained that it almost hurt him to see anybody else work. I very soon found out that if things were to run smoothly, I should have to do most of his work for him as well as my own. So he did develop a very hard work ethic, which was just as well. He's also credited with introducing into the British Army the rolling barrage, which was first deployed on the Somme in 1916. Now, I'm pretty certain that it was the French who first came up with the idea of the rolling barrage. I stand to be corrected by any of the listeners, but the British brought it in in 1916, and it was Alan Brooke who introduced it. And of course, he always got on very well with the French because he could speak French like a Frenchman. And the rolling barrage, for those who don't know, is instead of just pounding the heck out of the enemy's lines, you laid down a barrage which lifted in bounds as your own troops advanced across. So your own troops were protected right up until they got into the German lines. Because, of course, on the first day of the Somme, that's not what happened. The the barrage was lifted. The lads got up, went across, and, of course, the Germans, being the Germans, pretty quickly responded, got their machine guns up and cut our lads to pieces. He also was attached in early 1917 to one of the Canadian divisions, and he did the fire plan for the very successful attack on Vimy Ridge. And again, he had a boss who didn't exactly do a big pile of work, so he had to do most of the work. So again, you see this work ethic coming through all the time. So he had a a very productive war, a very busy war. He ended as a lieutenant colonel with the Distinguished Service Order and uh, two bars, so he had done well and he had lived, you know, and that was the, that was the critical thing. So he was less of one of the donkeys leading the lions, but more of a kind of lion himself. How does this ready him up for the interwar period? What happens to him after World War I? He was very lucky that he was selected. Well, I say lucky. He made his own luck. He was selected for the very first uh, course post-war staff college course at Camberley in Surrey. And you can imagine the quality of the students on that course. I've seen photographs of it. And as you just go through the list, you just pick out the who's who of the British Army for years to come. And you look at the Distinguished Service Officers orders, the Victoria Crosses, the Military Crosses. It was just all of the post-war staff college courses were of very highly decorated men who had served an apprenticeship in the trenches. But that first course was a particularly high quality. And uh, he excelled in the atmosphere of a year-long course. And he was earmarked there at the course. He did so well that he was earmarked as a future instructor. He was then posted after Staff College to the 50th Northumbrian Division for three years. It was a Territorial Army Division, and we had lots of those. Territorial Army, part-time. If you were in America, it would be a National Guard thing. And I think... That those three years, although he was very busy, I know he was very busy during that time, it was probably in many ways the easiest time that he had for the rest of his career because he was always working under pressure thereafter. In January 23, he returned to the Staff College for four years as an instructor. And, you know, you may recognize some of his fellow instructors at the time were Gort, who became a field marshal and chief of the Imperial General Staff, Adam, who was a corps commander and the adjutant general, Thorne, a very famous British general, Paget, who in World War II was commander in chief home forces, Anderson, who commanded the First Army, which was British and American in North Africa, Neem, Montgomery, Fuller, one of the people who first 
put together the doctrine of, and tactics for tanks, who unfortunately not a lot of British people read, but all the Germans read Fuller's work. They were an outstanding uh, group of instructors. And he was there about 18 months or so, about a year and a half, when tragedy struck and he was involved in a car crash. He was at the wheel, sadly, and he had two small children by then. But as a result, his wife was killed. Nowadays, she would have lived, I dare say, but she died about 24 hours after the accident. And he was left with two small children. And Alan Brooke was totally bereft, absolutely destroyed. A broken man, an absolutely broken man. And this comes through the more you read about him. He was a very, very sensitive and caring man. And the only thing he had to keep him going really was his work. And he just threw himself into his work. And as a result of that, he was then sent in 1927 to the Imperial Defence College, which, of course, brought in people from all over the empire and the Commonwealth, senior officers of all the services, trying to look at the higher strategic direction of war. And again, we see he worked hard at it. Again, he was still in mourning for his wife. He had no social life whatsoever. He got a nanny to look after the kids, of course. He saw as much of the children as he possibly could, but he had no social life or no social activity. But again, he thrives in the atmosphere of the Imperial Defence College. And again, not only does he pass and pass well, but they mark him down as a future instructor. Then in 1929, he left there February of 29 and was appointed Commandant of the School of Artillery at Lark Hill. And that was a big jump for him because... He was still only, there were so many people in the army, he was still only a substantive major. Although he was what they called a brevet lieutenant colonel, so he wore the rank of lieutenant colonel, but he was only a substantive major. But he was promoted to brigadier general to be commandant at Lark Hill, and he immediately threw himself into that with great enthusiasm. Uh, perhaps the insinuation would be that some of his predecessors didn't do it with enthusiasm. He largely rebuilt the camp. He started young officers' courses, he developed working doctrines such as uh, all arms cooperation, things which nowadays are just totally taken for granted. Alan Brooke was well to the fore and also wrote doctrine on tactical as well as technical aspects of artillery. And he brought in expert lecturers from other arms. Innovations, as I say, you know, nowadays, of course, you would do that. Why wouldn't you do it? But they weren't doing it until he did it. And he even brought in the great innovation of visual aids into the lectures. So, of course, it was nothing like PowerPoint, but they had up until then, they'd used nothing. His 1930 confidential report said, an officer of great ability, devotion to duty and charm of manner. He is an outstanding officer and highly educated professional soldier, far above the average for his rank. He started courses. It just seems incredible that these hadn't been started before. But he started courses for commanders, Royal Artillery, of all the divisions in the army. So when you had a division, for instance, an infantry, and most of them were infantry divisions by then, there were a few cavalry divisions still about the place, but they would have a, a senior officer, a brigadier usually, in charge of the Royal Artillery for that division. And they'd never been trained as commanders, Royal Artillery. So he started these. And of course, a lot of these people who came on these courses were his seniors when it came to rank and promotion. And he told them, look, the object of all of this is to develop doctrine and to hear your views. Now, it appears that most of them didn't have views, but that satisfied their honour. And he told them that he just wanted to make sure that the School of Artillery was working along the right lines and he valued their contribution. And he actually said in one note, he said, 
I don't think many of them had given much thought to tactics for the development or their development, but they certainly had few ideas on the subject. As a result, I had little difficulty in getting them to accept mine. So he stamped his personality on the whole of the... And of course, the Royal Artillery is a massive organisation within the army, uh, made up a huge percentage of it. He certainly wasn't a great personality. A contemporary of him said he did not seek popularity, nor was he a martinet. He was pure and simple a soldier. In 1928, while he was there, he met a girl called Benita Lees. She was the widow of an officer who had died of wounds sustained in the Dardanelles, the Gallipoli campaign. He met her and they got married and that brought great joy to them both. It was an absolute love match for the rest of their lives. In 1932, he went back to the Imperial Defence College as an instructor. And again, as he had done when he was a student there, he thrived in the atmosphere of studying and teaching the higher direction of war. And he was there until 1934. So all of this period, you can see this interwar period is very intense for him. He was then given command of an infantry brigade down at Plymouth. Now, that was unusual for a Royal Artillery gunner to be given an infantry brigade. But what he did was, he was so outstanding that they, they made an exception for him, but he immediately threw himself into infantry tactics and so on and trying to master the whole thing. And indeed he did. He formed a brigade school for teaching officers, and he also was very keen on teaching senior NCOs, non-commissioned officers. He lamented the quality of tactical training of the officers who were coming from Sandhurst, and he pushed for a school of infantry, which again, I mean, has long been established in the British Army. But again, it wasn't until he became the chief of the Imperial General Staff that a school of infantry at Warminster was established. Now it's totally natural for all NCOs and all young officers to go to the school of infantry. In those days, it simply didn't happen. So again, Allenbrook was the guy who got this innovation set up. In November 35, he became the inspector of artillery as a major general. Now, it was a very good promotion, but it wasn't a great job for him. Thankfully, it didn't last very long. It only lasted about eight or nine months, nine months, I think. And then he became the director of military training. So he was now in charge of all training throughout the British Army. And that gave him great scope. So you can see that when he suddenly took only a couple of years before he had been a substantive major, now he's a major general, but he's got the chance to really make his mark. And at the end of 1937, he was given command of a new mobile division, which was, it was an experimental division. It was the forerunner of the modern armoured division. Again, he wasn't there terribly long until that was um, basically about eight months. And he was then promoted yet again to become Lieutenant General commanding the new anti-aircraft corps. Before the war, there was this terrible fear that the bomber always gets through and It was decided that they needed thousands of anti-aircraft guns and so on. And he was put in charge of this new anti-aircraft command, as it were. And he got a very good insight into working with other people because he had to work with Dowding, who became, of course, Air Chief Marshal, Sir Hugh Dowding. And Dowding, of course, is one of the great architects of the victory at the Battle of Britain. But again, he wasn't really there all that long. He was only there until May of the following year, so you know, certainly far less than a year, when he became Colonel Commandant of the Royal Artillery and Commander-in-Chief of the Southern Command of the British Army. Now, he was sent in in May 39. On the 31st of August 39, the Commander-in-Chief of the Southern Command, it was designated, would become the Commander of two corps of the British Expeditionary Force should the British Army go to France. 
And of course, that gave him a whole new set of responsibilities because on the 20th of September 1939, they did deploy to France. And it's here that he began a diary. And this is the only reason that we know so much about Alan Brooke. He didn't write books or anything like that. He wrote a daily diary and the diary was sadly in some ways, the diary was not a proper diary. It wasn't a diary of events and so on. It was simply an unload to unburden himself of his days, frustrations and so on. It was written for his wife. And so she would, when he would go home at weekends later on, he would show her and she would read through the thing. Or when he finished a, a section of the diary, he would send it to her and she would read this. And it was purely an internal thing. And he did actually write on it, you know, this must never, ever be published because he was very frank in the diary. Had it been a proper diary that somebody might have kept of events and so on, there might have been a lot more information in it as to what he actually did. But there's enough in it to give us a real insight into the man. That sort of leads us up until they deployed to France, where the action is about to start. But again, David Fraser, General Sir David Fraser, his biographer said, he sort of took stock and he said, the sensitive withdrawn child had become the popular, hard riding and sporting yet thoughtful young officer. The young officer had gone through the fire of the First World War and developed into the shrewd, thorough and entirely professional senior who set a mark of efficiency and high standards on everything he touched. He had come to inspire awe in most not excluding members of his family, but he had never, even when suffering most from personal tragedy or professional frustration, lost the power to attract or amuse, to mimic, recount, or above all, sympathetically listen. He was, as he always had been, the officer, regimental as a button stick, the comrade in a joint venture of markedly courteous and considerate character, the commander whose presence invariably brought reassurance, whatever his private feelings. He was also a man whose outstanding and most memorable characteristic would be recalled by an old friend as his complete knowledge and deep love of everything to do with nature, and very simply by another as the most lovable human being I've ever known. Inwardly vulnerable and highly strung, outwardly calm and stern in appearance, aquiline, round-shouldered but impeccable, contemptuous of ostentation or affectation, quick-witted and as able a soldier as even his own Ulster had produced, he returned that September to war and to France. Wow. I mean, we'd all be pretty happy if someone writes things like that about us once we're gone, I think. What caused the anarchy? How did medieval migrants shape the language I'm speaking right now? Who won the Hundred Years' War? Could England's lost patron saint be buried under a tennis court in Suffolk? How did England's last medieval king end up under a car park? And were the Dark Ages really all that dark? I'm Dr Kat Jarman. And I'm Matt Lewis. On Gone Medieval, we'll uncover the most exciting and unexpected stories about the Middle Ages, hearing from the best and brightest minds. We will disentangle fact from fiction, bring you the latest discoveries, and reveal how the so-called Dark Ages laid the foundations for much of the world we're living in today. Subscribe to Gone Medieval from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Hold up. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to health care, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. But he sounds like he's certainly a visionary and someone who really does understand the importance of inter-service cooperation, the kind of person that you want in charge. So tell us, what happens to Alan Brooke once the action starts? Well, that's a very good way of putting it, actually. He was a visionary and a complete professional. Once war is declared, the phony war takes place, and then in 1940, then the Germans launched the Blitzkrieg. And then the story of the British Expeditionary Forces withdrawal, we never call it retreat in the British Army, we always call it a withdrawal. The withdrawal to Dunkirk is very well known, or at least we think it is well known. Many of the listeners will know of Major General Julian Thompson, who was Brigadier Julian Thompson, who was the largely the architect of the British victory in the Falklands War in 1982. In fact, I recently heard Julian Thompson referred to uh, some senior officers who were talking about the Falklands almost 40 years after the event. And they were saying the advantages that we had over the Argentinian. The, the Argentinians had many advantages over us, but the advantages we had, they included. And one of them said, but, and of course, we had Julian Thompson. And the other two officers said, yes, man of the match. So Julian Thompson knows a thing or two about war. And is an excellent author. He's, he's published quite a number of books. And about maybe 15, 16 years ago, I said to him once, I said, Julian, what are you working on now? And he said, a book about Dunkirk. And I said, surely it's already been all written. You know, we all have these visions of the boys coming across the beach and scrambling up in the boats, small boats and so on and so forth. And he said, no, not really. He said, it wasn't just like that. He said, and I had been a student of military history for well in excess of 40 years, 45 years. I had always imagined that we had been totally outfought all the way back to the beach. And actually, Julian Thompson explained that it wasn't quite as simple as that. He said that the withdrawal to Dunkirk was the classic example 
of the most difficult manoeuvre in warfare, which, as you know, is withdrawal in contact with the enemy. It's very easy to withdraw out of contact of the enemy. You simply get on a bus and drive backwards. But if you've got a German panzer division snapping at your heels, it's altogether a bit more difficult. And he said it was mainly because, of course, the Belgians on the left surrendered and many of the French divisions on the right collapsed. Now, many of the French divisions, we have to say, fought incredibly bravely, were well-led and fought with great resolution and helped the British get away. It was a close-run thing. And I said, oh, who was responsible for that? And he said, oh, Allenbrook. Unhesitatingly, he said it was Allenbrook. And I said, how so? And he said, well, Allenbrook could read the battle. He was constantly not only planning to attack people, but to withdraw. And he knew, you know, what do I do if this happens? What do I do if that happens? And he knew how to play about with his formations. And of course, in one classic bit, which we haven't got time to go into, on the left flank of the Brits, where there was this gaping hole appeared. And if the Germans had filled that hole, Dunkirk would not have happened. We would have got nobody away and probably would have had to sue for peace, which would have had calamitous results for the whole of Europe. So anyway, it was Allenbrook who saved the day, but he was brought back early. He was brought back on the 30th of May on the orders of Chief of the Imperial General Staff because he was such a capable guy. They brought him back and he was sent back to France because of most, of course, the Germans were not in most of France. And his orders were to reform the British Expeditionary Force Number 2 because there were still, I think, in the region of about 150,000 British soldiers in France. So he was sent back to reform BEF number two. When he got got there, he was absolutely shocked to see the sense of demoralization in the leadership of the French army. He saw that it was a lost cause and that if we reformed the BEF and tried to fight the Germans, with the French army being in the state that it was in, it was was suffering awful state of shock and paralysis, that we would just be throwing away these other troops who we had, you know, so we would have to have another Dunkirk. And uh, he managed to convince General Sir John Dill, the Chief of the Imperial General Staff, that this was a lost cause. And he then, on the 14th of June, had a telephone conversation with Churchill, whom he didn't know at this stage. I don't think they had ever met up until then. And Churchill, was, of course, was determined that we were going to fight on and fight on in France. And this long conversation, I think about half an hour, Brooke, as he still was called, Brooke, managed to persuade Churchill that this was a lost cause and he had to get the boys out. And as a result, we managed to get 145,000 British troops, 300 guns, 18,000 French who wanted to carry on, and 24,000 Polish troops, along with lots of odds and sods. And again, if it hadn't have been for Allenbrook, none of that would have happened. So it is Brooke's realism and firm handling of Churchill, the first time he had ever encountered Churchill, that his firm handling of him which saved the day. One of his staff, there was a fellow called Colonel Archdale. Fraser said, you know, the will and vision that had saved the rest of the British Expeditionary Force had been Brooks. The vision criticised by some as premature and defeatist was of a beaten France and of only Britain resurgent. The will was that of acting upon the vision and without delay saving the human material necessary for national revival. And Archdale, his member of the staff, said, I had always heard that he was stubborn, but, and this was the moment when we thank God for it, because he definitely saved those 145,000 Brits, 24,000 Poles, etc. So he went back to England. He had a short spell at Southern Command. And in July 1940, was appointed to command 
all of the UK home forces. So here's a guy who only, you know, a decade earlier had been a major and now he was appointed to command all of UK home forces. And it was quite obvious to everybody after his deft handling of his core and the in the withdrawal to Dunkirk, he was the man to do that. So when the German invasion comes and they were convinced at the time that it would come, he is the man who will fight it. He is the senior British soldier who will fight the defence of Britain. Of course, he didn't have the troops. He didn't have the equipment. He didn't have the guns, the tanks. He didn't have anything. And he had a similar problem, of course, to the problem that Rommel later had in 1944, and that is, where do I defend? Do I defend strongly on the coast and try to throw them back into the sea? Or do I keep a thin crust on the coast and mobile reserves back? But my problem will be the same as... It was prescient because Rommel had the same plan. You keep the mobile divisions back. How are you sure that they're going to get to where they need to? Because the Luftwaffe will interdict them. And his problem, he had a problem with the likes of the South Downs and the Thames River. He had to keep his reserves to the north of the Thames River and the South Downs and the North Downs. And then when the invasion came, wherever it came, deploy them. But how do you get across the river? How do you get through the gaps? There's only a couple of roads ran through, you know, the Luftwaffe would have been all over you. He started a massive program of training the army, training commanders, weeding out the commanders who simply were not up to it. A big, big problem. And a problem you come across all the time in his diary, he mentions it quite a few times, is that a lot of his commanders are not good enough, but he has nobody to replace them with. And he blames this on all the good guys who were killed in the First World War, the number of majors and colonels who were killed in the trenches was, of course, incredibly high. And he laments this all the time. In December of 41, he then succeeds Dill as chief of the Imperial General Staff. Dill simply couldn't handle Churchill. The problem with Churchill was that he would come up with all sorts of fantastic ideas. Let's invade Norway next week. No comprehension of the logistical difficulties or not being within air power and so on and so forth. He would come up with all sorts of crazy ideas. And Dill would tell him, no, Prime Minister, that's not possible or whatever. Churchill rather unkindly started calling him Dilly Dally, which was very, very cruel. But thank God for Dill being Dilly Dally, because otherwise Churchill would have had us doing all sorts of stupid things. So Churchill and Dill agreed that it was time for a parting of the ways. And Dill was actually appointed, I think, to become the governor general of Bombay in India. Um, but actually, that's not where he went, because he subsequently went to Washington to become the our chiefs of staff representative with the United States chiefs of staff. And he did a tremendous job there and was promoted to field marshal. Sadly, he died in 1944 of a heart attack in Washington. But so highly did George Marshall and the American generals think of him that they gave him what amounted to a state funeral and buried him in Arlington National Cemetery, which is, of course, a hallowed place for them and a great honour. And they actually gave him an equestrian statue. And I've been to it, actually, if you ever get the chance to go to Arlington, you go there, there, it's quite incongruous there in the middle of it all is this great big bronze statue of a British Army Field Marshal on a horse. And it shows you, you know, Dill was a good man. Now, Dill also happened to come, as I mentioned, from Northern Ireland and was a great, great friend and mentor of Alan Brooks. But Dill and Churchill agreed they needed a new chief of the Imperial General Staff. And 
a lot of people were putting Brook forward as the only possible choice. Beaverbrook, Lord Beaverbrook, the Canadian multimillionaire publisher and so on, Minister of Propaganda, and I think he ran industry for a while. And he, with an eye to propaganda, he was pushing Churchill to appoint a fellow called Archibald Nye. Now, Nye was only 47 years of age. He was far too young, inexperienced. But Nye had joined in the ranks in the First World War. His father, I think, had been a sergeant in the Black Watch. And Nye had joined as a private soldier and had then made it up, had been commissioned in the field in France and was now a major general. So Beaverbrook was saying, look, the propaganda value of having the chief of the Imperial General Staff from the ranks is immense. We will be persuading everybody throughout the empire and the Commonwealth that you're not fighting for the ancient regime here. You're fighting for the new way ahead. Even a guy who joins as a private soldier can make it to the top. And so Churchill sent for Nye and offered him the job. And Nye just shook his head and just said, absolutely not, Prime Minister. There's no way that I could do that. Now, he he subsequently became Vice Chief of the Imperial General Staff and a very competent staff officer. But he said, there's only one conceivable choice, and that is Brooke. It has to be Brooke. And, of course, Churchill had soldiered in the army with Brooke's elder brothers, both of whom had been killed in the First World War. And he said, no, no, he said, no, I can't have that. He said, do you know when I glower at him across the table, he glowers even harder back at me. (laughs) When I thump the table to make a point, he thumps the table even harder back. He said, I know these Brooks, stiff-necked Ulstermen, and there's nobody worse to deal with than that. (laughs) So so he he had Ulsterman weighed up pretty well, but he had to send for him in the end and offer him the job, and he took the job. As chief of the Imperial General Staff, he would have had to attend nearly every morning, I think, with the exception of Sundays, sometimes even on Sundays and many Saturdays, the Chiefs of Staff Committee, which, of course, had the professional heads of the Army, the Air Force and the Navy. And they had lots of late evening meetings as well. And in fact, in March 1942, he hadn't been there terribly long, he succeeded Admiral Sir Dudley Pound as the chairman of the Chiefs of Staff Committee. Pound was not a well man, and he died not a lot longer. He'd been suffering from a brain tumour, but of course nobody really knew that. But after March 1942, Brooke was the foremost military advisor to Churchill. And of course, Churchill, in addition to being Prime Minister, was also the Minister of Defence of the British government. The typical day in 1944, we're talking about um, early June 44 or late May, 0900 hours in the morning, he was at the war office at Whitehall. He had briefings from the likes of the Director of Military Intelligence, the Director of Military Operations, and so on. He went through all the telegrams that had arrived in overnight. He ran an incredibly efficient headquarters, as you can imagine. It was just go, go, go the whole time. He didn't get bogged down in the detail, of which there's always a temptation to do. At 10 o'clock, he had carried on with these personal briefings, as I say, from the Director of Military Operations and the Director of Military Intelligence. At 10.30, he would go to Great George's Street for the Chiefs of Staff Committee meeting. On this particular day, they discussed doodlebugs, the V1 bombs coming over Britain, Tito's partisans shooting German prisoners, feeding the citizens of Rome when it would be liberated because they knew that was coming any day, policy and communications to the Soviet Union with regard to D-Day, When do we tell them? When do we not? Because if it gets out, of course, I mean, if they tell the Russians four days in advance and a Russian, a spy, or they let it slip, they had situation reports concerning shipping in the Mediterranean, which I'll mention again, perhaps, if we get a chance. 
The command and control of secret operations in the Balkans was discussed. The potential of Australia as a base for operations in the war against Japan. He received or they received a committee report for requirements for war in the Far East. He had a short break for lunch. Then he was back to the war office. He had visitors and interviews all afternoon. The first was a general who was second in command of the Chindits in Burma, the long-range penetration boys in Burma. The second interview was the financial advisor to the Viceroy of India, especially concerning the Bengal famine and how they could get famine relief there. The third visit were two senior U.S. Army officers. And this went on all afternoon. And at 18.30, at half six in the evening, he was back to Great Georgia Street for another meeting, this time of the War Cabinet. The length and agenda of these War Cabinet meetings very much depended on Churchill, upon his mood and his fancy. At this particular one, they discussed manpower at the end of the war with Germany, uh, how they'll demobilise troops to get them into the British factories and so on. Industry, the reconstruction at home of all the bomb damage. You know, we lost, I can't remember now how many um, houses were damaged. I mean, it was a couple of million, I think, in total. Oh, and, um, and the armed forces requirements for the occupation of Germany and so on and so forth. So as per, obviously, the chiefs of staff meetings, for all of these meetings and briefings, he had folders and briefs. So his staff officers were briefing him all the time. So he was absorbing information and then he was going in and he was always incredibly well prepared. And that's why the Americans were quite wary of him at a lot of the meetings, the conferences, which they had in Canada and and Washington and Casablanca and Yalta and the Crimea, all, all sorts of things. He was always so well prepared that he generally got his way or influenced things tremendously well. That particular cabinet meeting ended at a quarter past eight in the evening. He then dined at Boodle's Club with two friends. And at half past 10 that evening, he was back to Great Georgia Street for a defence committee of the cabinet meeting, which was largely concerned with the transportation plan, which you will remember was the preparation for D-Day. It was the attempt, and in fact, the successful attempt to knock out the German airfields and the railways and bridges, road bridges and so on, leading to northern France, which was a very controversial plan in that they knew that quite a lot of French civilians would be killed in the bombing. Sensibly, they brought the French government in exile in on it, and they said, no, it has to happen. You see, it was controversial because, of course, Bomber Harris on the British side and two of the American senior generals, they wanted to keep bombing Germany alone, saying that would be a better use of it. But eventually Eisenhower overruled them and said, no, you go with the transportation plan. And on that day, that War Cabinet meeting ended at half past midnight. He was very lucky because he got away at half past midnight and uh, was able to return to his flat in Whitehall Gardens. He lived in London during the week and on Saturdays would motor down to his home at Hartley Whitney, which was just just maybe 20 or 30 miles away. And he would usually enjoy a Sunday at home with his wife and children as well. But I know a lot of these meetings went on to two and three and four in the morning, and they found them very, very tiring. And I had the privilege of knowing a, a chap called Terence Otway, who died some years ago, and he commanded the 9th Parachute Battalion on D-Day. And Terence Otway in 1943 was the duty officer in the war office in Whitehall as a major. And the phone went at two o'clock in the morning. And he said he knew immediately who it was. It was either Churchill or it was somebody imitating Churchill. And it was, of course, Churchill. And he said to him, uh, who's speaking? And he said, Major Otway, sir. And he said, I want the war map. And he said, right away, sir. So he went and got the war map, which had on it the position of all the convoys, all the British divisions and major formations and so on. And it was a big 
piece of secret material. And they then had to get in the short distance between the war office and Downing Street. It had to go by car. He had armed guards to take him across with this thing. He got to Downing Street and uh, went in and they said, you've to take it straight in. And I think it was into the cabinet room. And uh, he knocked the door and came through and Churchill was there with Alan Brooke and others. And I said to Terence Otway, I said, who, who else was there? And he said, well, those that I can remember, he said, there was Ismay, who was Churchill's chief of staff. There was Jan Christian Smuts, Field Marshal Jan Christian Smuts, Alan Brooke. And he said, I can't remember the rest, but there was a whole host of them. And Churchill said, ah, Otway. He said, put the map up. And so he did that. And as he went to leave, Churchill said to him, Otway, stay, join us. And can you imagine for a young major to sit in with these guys for the next two hours while they, he didn't dare say, well, actually, sir, I have to get back to the office, to the phone, to the man on the phone. He just sat down. But can you imagine to sit there with boys like Allenbrook and Smuts and so on as they discussed the higher direction of the war? So he found himself in these meetings because, you see, Churchill would often lie late in the day and then, you know, arise from his bed, although he often would dictate notes and so on, as we know from his bed at nine in the morning. But he would get up about maybe sometimes 11 or 12, and then he would go through to three or four in the morning. And of course, Allenbrook found these and everybody else found them very, very trying indeed. And it wasn't just at Downing Street, it was at Checkers at the weekends and so on. And you required a lot of stamina to keep going in such circumstances. It's important to remember that as Chief of the Imperial General Staff, he was the professional head of the British Army. So he was ultimately responsible for all senior appointments and promotions. As I said earlier, he constantly lamented the lack of talent that he had, and he blamed that on the losses in World War I. He was also responsible for supervising all the military operations of the European Allies with governments in exile in London. And of course, that could be difficult, especially with de Gaulle and the Free French. As we know from, there was some great fallouts there. And apart from Churchill and Roosevelt, the ultimate command and control of the war of the Western Allies rests with the combined chiefs of staff, which is the British and American chiefs of staff. And they're the people who focus upon grand strategy, including all resources, men, material, aims and objectives, dealing with the Soviets, the post-war resettlements, empires, etc. And of course, he also had to attend all the conferences. And I think any student of World War II has to really look at those conferences. Quebec, Washington, Casablanca, Tehran, Yalta, Moscow, even with Stalin. Brooks' dominant character at these meetings was, as I mentioned earlier, often a source of irritation for the Americans. They learned very early on that they had to be as well prepared as he was. He could speak without notes. He absorbed his briefings so well. And the Americans were often really surprised that he could give forth on a whole range of subjects with only four words on a piece of paper in front of him and a wide range of subjects. But he just needed those four words to keep him in sequence. And at the early conferences, the Americans almost felt as if they had been hard done by because He's just got everything he wanted. But of course, with hindsight, we know that what he wanted was actually what was required. And because the Americans are very fast learners, but they didn't know a lot at the beginning. In 1942, they were still ill-prepared for what was coming. So he generally got his way. And as a result, the Americans were very wary of him. But the Americans learned and learned very, very quickly, as they always do. He wanted 
to get away from all of this. He wanted battlefield command again, and actually he was well suited for it. Churchill offered him overlord the invasion of France in 44, and he leapt at it. He absolutely leapt at it, and he said, right, that's for me. And when the time came, he didn't get it. He was bitterly disappointed when the offer was withdrawn, and it basically had to go to an American because by then it was obvious that the majority of the resources which would go into France, not in the first week or so, in the first lot of days, it was the British and the Canadians who had the major contribution. But as the build-up in the bridgehead developed, it was obviously it was going to be the American resources which were biggest. And so Roosevelt quite rightly insisted that it be an American. We have a parallel, and there are a lot of parallels. Perhaps some other time we can discuss the parallels between Brooke and Marshall because Marshall wanted a bit of the action as well. But Marshall was, he was the exact counterpart of Brooke as the Supreme American Chief of Staff, but he wanted to get in on the war, but actually he could handle Roosevelt best as Brooke could handle Churchill best. So these you have these two giants of military skill stuck in these positions at the top, but in Brooke's case, he was busting to get back onto the battlefield. But he was very, very upset when Eisenhower got the job instead. As I say, Marshall was in a a similar position and Brooke had to stay with Churchill, which for all of us was a good thing. Well, I've got to ask then, if Churchill appreciated Brooke, although he knew that he could get in a bit of a stonewalling argument with him, what was his real relationship like with Brooke. Did he see him as a strategic genius like history has shown him to be? Or was there some other perception that Churchill had of him? I don't think that Churchill perceived him as a strategic genius. I think Churchill only perceived himself as a strategic genius. Brooke was a cautious general in many ways. He was, above all else, the supreme realist. This comes through time and time again when we're talking about Brooke. He was an absolute realist, and he had a phenomenal respect for the German war machine, the fighting abilities of the German soldier. And it was because of this supreme realism, from his point of view, his relationship with Churchill, quite straightforward. He had to maintain this realistic attitude because Churchill very often didn't have a very realistic attitude to how things should be done. At times, the relationship was fraught. There's no doubt about that. They had respect for each other. There's no doubt. And Churchill's hours drove him to absolute exasperation. Churchill's flights of fancy, Churchill ordering work done by his officers, by his staff officers, let me have a paper on some quite unfeasible thing. And he would have Brooke's best staff officers working for 48 hours without sleep to produce a paper for something which Brooke could have told you right at the beginning wasn't going to work. So there was a great deal of tension in the relationship. Brooke said of him, he said that he was genius mixed with an astonishing lack of vision. He is quite the most difficult man to work with that I have ever struck, but I should not have missed the chance of working with him for anything on earth. So you can see that he had great respect for Churchill, but he found it very, very difficult. And he poured this out in his diary all the time. I think you could say that Churchill's many fanciful strategic ideas collided with sound military reality. And it was Brooke who had to stand up to him. Brooke was the one man who really could stand up to him. It's been claimed, I think it was it was maybe Max Hastings, the author, said that Churchill's greatness was that he appointed Brooke as chief of the Imperial General Staff and kept him for the whole war. It was definitely Brooke who kept Churchill on the rails. 
After one particularly fierce clash, Churchill confided in General Sir Hastings Ismay, his own chief of staff. He said he did not think that he could continue to work with Brooke because he hates me. I can see hatred <laughs> looming from his eyes. And uh, Ismay went and had a word with Brooke and said he thinks he, you hate him. And Brooke said to him, he responded, he says, hate him. I don't hate him. I love him. He said, but the first time I tell him that I agree with him when I don't will be the time to get rid of me, for then I can be of no more use to him. So it really was a fraught relationship, but it was very, very professional. When Ismay went back and told Churchill what Brooke had said, Churchill burst into tears and wiped away the tears with a handkerchief and said, dear Brookie, because he was often called Brookie at that stage. So their partnership was a very successful one. And I mean, it led, there's no question, it led Britain to victory in 1945. But it was Hastings who did say, he said, their partnership created the most efficient machine for the higher direction of the war possessed by any of the combatant nations, even if its judgments were sometimes flawed and its ability to enforce its wishes increasingly constrained. And what he means by that, increasingly constrained by our lack of manpower and our lack of war resources. We were very much dropping down the league when it came to, obviously, the Americans and the Russians. But it was Brooke who ensured that any British military plans which were enacted were based upon sound logistical and operational reality. Supreme realist comes through all the time. It was a fraught relationship, but it was a very worthwhile one. It really does show you the importance of not being surrounded by sycophants and yes-men, a lot like Hitler was, or people who were just too scared to say no. So we owe a lot to Alan Brooke and his fortitude. But what happens to him after the war? Well, he retired immediately after the war was over. And he took the title Alan Brooke. He simply took his first name and his surname, put them together and became Viscount Alan Brooke. And it's, I suppose, technically inaccurate to refer to Alan Brooke before that period when he took the Viscountcy. But actually, people do all the time. You know, he's always referred to as Alan Brooke, even before that period. So he retired in 1946. He took up many positions, uh, mostly honorary and mostly unpaid. He became Colonel Commandant of the Honourable Artillery Company, and he was appointed to the boards of businesses like the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company, the Midland Bank, the Belfast Banking Company, the Hudson Bay Company, which he particularly enjoyed because he, he loved Canada. Queen's University in Belfast, he was the Chancellor and Constable of the Tower of London. But he was somewhat impoverished and he had to sell his house and move into the gardener's cottage at Hartley Whitney. Now, I mean, this would never have happened in the United States, but it certainly happened in impoverished Britain and he had to sell he was a great ornithologist and he had a great collection of bird books which were worth some money and he had to actually sell them which was very very sad indeed he traveled frequently back to Northern Ireland uh, where the family was he indulged his passion for ornithology and bird photography he's president of the Zoological Society of London and a vice president of the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds he kept himself very, very busy, but didn't make any money. And that's the, you know, that was a bit of a sadness. Not that money ever really interested him, but just having to sell his house was a bit of a blow. And he suffered another bad blow when um, his daughter, Kathleen, was killed in a riding accident in 1961. He died then on, on the 17th of June, 1963. He was sipping a cup of tea in bed and he had a, a wee heart attack and just died He'd been due that day to attend a garter service in St. George's Chapel in Windsor. And nine days later, he was given a funeral service in Windsor and buried in St. Mary's Churchyard. I would finish by saying it was certainly a very, very full life. 
I would remind the listeners of, of three quotations with which I began. One was from Montgomery, who said he was the greatest soldier, sailor or airman produced by any country fighting in the last war. Another was from Fraser, who said Field Marshal Viscount Allenbrook probably did more than any other soldier to bring victory to the Allies in 1945. And then Horrocks, when he said nearly everyone has heard of Montgomery, Alexander and Eisenhower, but finished off by saying, but I can assure you that he was the greatest soldier of them all. He really was. We were very, very lucky to have him. If you can get hold of his war diary, it's well worth the read. The other volume on him that's worth reading is General Sir David Fraser's book, which is simply entitled Allenbrook, which is based on those war diaries. Without the war diary, we wouldn't know anything about the man, sadly. So that was Field Marshal Viscount Allenbrook, a man little known today, but thankfully we had him on our side. Well, quite a, uh, a sad end, really, for such a remarkable soldier. And thank you so much, Bill, for bringing this forgotten Field Marshal back to our attention. Thanks very much indeed. A pleasure. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.